something fun and unique it's a sonya special oh, oh, oh my god well thanks Brittany. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure i'm gonna tell you a story Brittany. let me tell you, you are a story. gonna tell me a story you are gonna tell me a story i am so, gonna tell you a story um so uh ladies and gentlemen let me set the stage for you a little bit before our guest of honor takes the mic <laughs> sonya has been asking and really pushing and prodding for me to read the book Helter Skelter and research and research and research Charlie Manson. And I've researched Charlie Manson over the years. I've started reading Helter Skelter, but Sonia has a passion to a level I was never going to get to. <laughs> True that. So, true that. <laughs> it is. Uh, it, it's probably a passion that I'm not even fully prepared for. So, <laughs> Scarlettos, here's what we decided to do. We decided to change things up a little bit, and so um, we always talk about our. Not always, but frequently, we talk about our other podcast inspirations on here, and. Mine, I have always said, one of them is My Favorite Murder. And in the My Favorite Murder style, it's one person tells a story to the other person and about the true crime. And the other person kind of interjects with little tidbits or questions and reactions and things like that. And since I didn't feel like I would be able to effectively represent the Charles Manson case to the level that I know Sonya can... I suggested that she take this one on her own and tell me a story. And in turn, at some point down the line, she already knows what it's going to be, but I'm not going to tell you what it's going to be. I'm going to do the same for her. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, uh, Which I'm equally that, excited about, by the way. That might be coming. And, and you know what? I, I can tell your interest has been piqued since I told you what mine is because you've been bringing it up more frequently. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, I'm excited, but I'm a little intimidated now because you might know things that I am not going to know. But anyway, um, uh, Ugh, maybe I don't know. That one, that one's an interesting one. I am excited about that. We won't we won't lead into that yet. No, and I don't know that you know I don't know that that's going to be coming up real soon, but probably not too far down the line. And this is going to be a fun change of pace for us because it's a new format. We'll see how it goes, and. Who knows? Maybe you'll be seeing more of this coming from us down the line, depending on how, how we think it goes, what our feedback from you is. But um, I'm excited because I get to take the night off and I get to let you tell me 
a terrifying bedtime story. Alrighty. So you ready um, for this? I I am. I am. Uh, and I hope I don't do I hope I don't disappoint. Um <laughs> I do want to start by talking a little bit about why I am so interested in Charles Manson. And Brittany, we've talked about this before. Um I was in a long term of the relationship with someone who had written a the writer director who wrote a one man show about Charles Manson. And I was probably in my early 20s and he was 30 something and uh, it was really good. And he got the inspiration for this one man show from seeing the one man show about Drew Mukapodi called True. I think we've already talked about this on another episode, yep. but I'll give you yeah. a little brief piece of it. So that was that one man show was performed by Robert Morris, who was amazing. He won multiple Tonys, so on and so on. And it was a, an amazing piece of acting. So in the vein of that, you know, my, my ex wrote this amazing one man show about Charles Manson. And it was literally just a black box with Charles Manson sitting there telling the story of Charles Manson. Now you would, you would sort of question that and go, don't we have enough video of Charles Manson? Do we need to have a one man show about Charles Manson? But this was really insightful in a way that I don't think that any of the video, because whenever you see Charles Manson on video, he's performing. Everybody needs to understand <laughs> that. This is a man master manipulator and a master criminal from a very early age. So let's not, you know, delude ourselves. He knows what he's doing all the time. He is mentally ill or was mentally ill, but he definitely knew what he was doing the entire time. And that came from a life of, um, of criminal activity, to be quite honest with you. So... What's interesting about that one man show, which Brittany, when we talked about last, you were like, oh, what? Uh huh. The person that my ex wanted to play Charlie, which would have been really, really amazing, was Robert Blake. And at the time, oh, yeah, that's right. none of the Robert Blake, whatever he did, I think he killed his girlfriend or whatever. None of that had yeah. come out. So we were like sort of tracking down uh, Robert Blake and trying to like communicate with him and get him um, a copy of the script so that he could take a look at it. Now, we didn't know how crazy Robert Blake was. That was not information I had, but we thought he was really great in cold blood, he which is dodged a bullet. Yeah, totally. Right. So no, 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 he was having any of it. So somehow we did get him the script and he completely freaked out. Send us like a nasty email or it wasn't an email, a nasty letter, whatever it was. Wait, so he I mean, read it? I don't think he read it, but he responded to receiving it and he was not happy. Oh. So he pretty much like said, you know, in his yeah. typical aggressive way. And we were like, oh, okay, well, so much for that. Now, to today, that's not my my boyfriend anymore, obviously, uh, <laughs> after many years. Um, but I, I do hope that he someday, or if he hasn't already, if he has, I haven't seen it, but it is a really good one man play. I mean, it's fantastic. The theater is kind of dead right now, I guess, for considering the situation we're in, but, um, it, it is really good. And, you know, that kind of leads me into the Charles Manson story. Charles Manson is a fascinating character. I think that m most would agree. Whenever we've seen him, um, you know, we saw him a lot on video. We saw a lot of communication with him and a lot of interviews with him after he, you know, was essentially sent to trial and during trial and then uh, found guilty, of course. And I'm not, you know, surprising you guys with any <laughs> new information here. But Spoiler how it alert. went down. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Do we mean Charles Manson was in jail? <laughs> Um, and thank God. Well, let's just say that. So Charles Manson was born, born Charles Miles Manson. He was born in 1934 and he was born in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, he was, Wikipedia says he's an American criminal and cult leader. Uh, That's fair. 
that's slightly. So here's what we know about Charlie. Charlie was a very charismatic person. He started his life off with a prostitute mother who appears forced him to watch her have sex with her tricks. Um, he started a life of crime really early. I think his first criminal activity was when he was 12. Well, let me rephrase that. The first criminal activity he was he was uh, he was punished for was when he was 12 years old. I think he held, you know, or he, he burglarized something or he held something up with a gun. Okay. Uh, and then he continued thereon throughout his uh, early life. So, you know, he had it pretty bad. He was he was definitely I'm sure there was some sexual abuse there um, some way or another, um, especially if he was sent to reformatories at a young age, because that seemed to be typical at the time. Um, Sorry, real quick. I, I'm I'm really listening intently. Reformatories. Is that like a juvie? Okay, thank you. Yeah. So that kind of leads us to Charlie growing up throughout this life, you know, in a, in a pretty rough way, you know, he learned from criminals very early on. Again, his mom was a prostitute. Um, I'm sure, like I said, sexual abuse from an early age from a variety of, of people. He just wasn't well cared for. He spent out of 32 years of his life, he spent 17 of them in either juvenile retention or reformatories or in prison. So he yeah, learned wow. early on how to manipulate people, um, you know, how to succeed in a life of crime and to get others to do what he wanted. Um, it, it is said that in, I mean, again, he had many crimes in his history. One of the crimes, it appears, was that he raped a man in prison by holding a razor to his neck. Yeah, like, what the... Ugh. Yeah, um, okay, wow. Yeah. I'll tell you later a little sidebar about when Charlie went back to prison when he was older, the folks uh -huh. he used to hang out with, because I was just like, that is a really weird bit of information. Oh, all right. Yeah. So... Yeah, I'm excited. When Charlie gets out of jail. Charlie is a, actually a fairly accomplished musician when it comes to being a good musician and actually a good performer. He had actually a really good voice. And if you listen to some of his recordings online, you'll be surprised. What I told my boyfriend is, you know what? He sounds better than Bob Dylan. And I'm sorry, <laughs> Bob Dylan, but Bob Dylan's voice to me, I can't take it. But if you listen to some of the recordings from Charlie, you know, you might be surprised at how, how good he actually is. And we'll talk about that a little later about how he sort of comes full circle in LA and how he gets connected to people that most people are really surprised about. So again, Charlie is in prison. He's done these things to date. He's 32 years old. He gets out of jail. This is 1967 and it's the height of the hippie movement, you know, free love, blah, blah, blah. Everybody's awesome. So on and so on. Um, so he goes to San Francisco. He goes, you know, he's, I don't, I don't know where he's living. I'm sure he's sort of living in either a commune or some kind of hippie world, whatever happens. And uh, he's performing on the street with a guitar and people really like him. You know, he's very charismatic. He's, you know, any portrayal you see of Charlie, including Charlie himself, he's got these really dark, deep set eyes and he they're piercing. He's very, very, very um, influential and very manipulative. Um, so he if you look at pictures of him when he was young, you might even say he was attractive. He was definitely attracted attractive to some of the people who would later follow him. And that's really important. I mean, he was powerful to these people and all consuming. So Charlie goes and somehow uh, San Francisco comes down to Southern California. 
he starts living at Spawn Ranch. Now, Spawn Ranch is an old, again, Brittany, we've talked about Spawn Ranch because it was yeah. in our Dark Tourism episode. Uh-huh. And I'm dying to get there, but I'm pretty sure it's not really there anymore like it was. Spawn Ranch was an old movie uh, setup, movie set um, that George Spawn essentially bought after, you know, a lot of the movies had been shot there and they still used it while he was, he, he owned it. He was an older gentleman, probably in his seventies. He was blind and um, he was having a really difficult time maintaining Spawn Ranch by himself. He needed some help. And so he let these young people who sort of became the Manson family live mm-hmm. at Spawn Ranch. So when you look at, and, and I'm going to suggest some some visual entertainment for you guys um, because I think it's a really good representation. Um, you know, I've read Helter Skelter. I thought it was great and um, it's very, very informative. I'm but really enjoying I, it. I'm just a slow reader. Yeah. he, I, Vincent Bugliosi is, is a really good writer. So I give him credit, you know, and most, you know, prosecuting attorneys, I don't have much faith in anymore after all the things, cases we've talked about, Brittany, but he's um, a t- to me very effective and probably as honest as you can get with an attorney, whatever that means. Um, but something that I would suggest everyone look at, and it's called The Family Inside the Manson Cult. And it's actually a documentary about the Manson family and about the murders that we'll be talking about. And it's really cool because I'm like, oh, you know, it does, it, it does represent it really well. So I think that everybody should watch that. The other reason I would suggest you watch that is because one of the Manson family members, Linda Kasabian, who was a part, who sort of participated in the murders per se, she was on the premises when they happened, but um, she's actually, you know, one of the, they interview her and they talk to her and she talks you through all of the different instances that happened because she was there. She was there when the Tate murders happened. She was there when the LaBianca murders happened. Apparently she was there when the Hinman murders happened. I don't think she was there for Donald Shea, but I'm not sure who was, but she was there the whole time. And she does a really good job of representing her feelings during those situations. So oh, that's really cool. That'd be really fascinating to hear. It is. It's very cool. She's um, an interesting lady. And I think she had, you know, best intentions. She was just a young person who got manipulated with yeah. everyone else. Right. So Charlie and his uh, or his his friends, let's just say, are living at Spawn Ranch. You've got um, a variety of people. Now, I think the Manson family was you know, fairly sizable at one point, up to 100 people. But the key players are the people who participated in the, um, the Sharon Tate murders and the LaBianca murders. These are the people we will be talking about. Um, and they're all important as well as the, sorry, as well as the Hinman murder, which is sort of this precursor to that, that the mm-hmm. Tate murders. So again, living at Spawn Ranch, uh, with Charlie, Charlie was the, the sort of the king of the world at Spawn Ranch. I mean, it's, it's like a little fake town, honestly. I mean, it would be like if you went to Disney World or Disneyland and you went through like, you know, Western town. That's what it looked. I mean, that's what it was like, you know, so everybody had a little front porch and, you know, it was a very it was very much a commune. And this is, again, in the 60s. Everybody was doing a lot of drugs. You know, it was all about love and whatever. Um, I don't know if you're going to I was just going to say, I don't know if you're going to mention it, but I thought the best representation that I've seen of it is from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. To me, that was like, oh, I can totally envision how this would have been now. 
Uh, you'll get a good representation from the, the, the what from I the mentioned documentary. to Okay, great. Yeah, but I did really like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, I thought it, it was really, and, and I love this idea that you can get this alternative, you know, universe yeah. where maybe it didn't happen and holy shit, you know. Because Sorry, it is really, I, may have, I may have just taken you off course. Sorry, I didn't mean to. I just no, thought that no. was a really, a really cool depiction of it. Yeah, no, please interject because I need to take breaths. Um, <laughs> all right, so... Back to Spawn Ranch. So you guys can imagine, right? A bunch of hippies, guys and girls living the free life, listening to Charlie talk about, you know, all kinds of things. You know, he was very, very influential in their lives. And he became the leader of that group, hence the Manson family. So they did a ton of drugs together. And in particular, they did a lot of LSD. And there were kids there. Um, you know, there were children. These, these, And the people who were there were young, and they had children. So all oh, really young people. Um, Charlie made sure that all of the women were his, right? He he, if nobody was having sex with any of these women that he was bringing in, except him, unless he wanted them to, he would frequently give these women over or allow others to have sex with these women to get what he wanted. So it was a pretty bad situation. And also earlier in Charlie's life, one of the things that he had, um, it, you know, his, his part of his criminal career was that he was arrested for taking a woman over state lines for prostitution reasons. So he, he was familiar with using women in that way, um, sort of bartering with them because he's a dick. Um, <laughs> so sorry, did I say that? <laughs> sorry. Lightly. Yeah. So, you know, again, we've got Charlie there every day preaching to these people. Now, let's talk a little bit about Charlie. Charlie Manson was an incredible racist and he yes, really he was, I mean, incredible, like yeah, for real. And, per, and persuasive and manipulative with these young people who were all again, very influential. You know, he got in their ear and he really made them think that there was essentially going to be a race war. And Charlie wanted a race war. There was a reason for this. And, you know, it's offensive material. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, Charlie's idea was that, the African-Americans, because this was right around civil rights, right? So people uh -huh. were angry and the Black Panthers and people were scared. And at that time, it wasn't that far fetched that there could be a race war because there was already this fighting in the street and Watts. And it, it was pretty incredible. So I'm not surprised that these people sort of fell for that concept because that concept appeared to be happening in front of them. So Charlie really pushing hard on this race war thing. And here's his, his, his idea. Hmm that uh, I found really interesting was, well, not interesting, sad, but um, he was, again, persuasive about it, was that the there was going to be a race war. The African-American community was going to rise up. They were going to take over, and they were going to win that race war, and they weren't going to be capable. This is what a dick he is. They weren't going to be <laughs> capable of running it themselves. So oh, no. he was going to sit on the sidelines with his people and wait for the African-American community to fail after they take over so he and his family could step in and, and run it for them because they would run it better. Oh, my goodness. Pretty delusional, I must say. Yeah. And, again, offensive. So I'm not going to use the terminology Charlie's obviously because i just I, i'm i'm not no, going to go too deep in no, it but no. understand his moment his his motivation behind this all of this was to start a race war and when it didn't happen at the speed at which he wanted it he uh you know this is where he turned you know in the direction of um you know the the murders that we'll talk about in a little while 
A couple things that I want to mention. Sorry, I know I'm talking a lot. Brittany, jump in here anytime no, you have this questions. Is your, no, no, no. I'm not, like I said, this is story time. I'm just taking it in. Yeah. So what's interesting about Charlie that people talk about is his proximity to some pretty famous people. Um, yeah. And his ability to get close to people. You know, people, again, he was a good performer. He was a good musician. He was a good songwriter. He was a good singer. Uh, and he played the guitar pretty well. So, again, check out his recordings. It's kind of amazing to listen to and creepy. And all I can think of is, God, if you didn't know it was Charlie, you may listen to it. Um, <laughs> but he, somehow or another, well, not somehow or another, I'll tell you how. Dennis Wilson, for some reason, Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, by the Thank way. Thank you for clarifying. For some reason, decided to pick up some of Charlie's family as they're walking down the road. Uh, I think it sounds like they were hitchhiking. And he picks them up and he brings them back to his house. Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. So how kookaroo, that would never happen in L.A. right now, by I the way. Or anytime, you know, in, currently. Currently, yeah. He decides, <laughs> let's take wow. these cute little chicks, you I know, actually, over to... I did not to... know that. That's, okay, wow. I mean, yeah, I, 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 knew, up, man. I, knew, I knew that there was, like, a connection there. I didn't know he picked up members of his family that were hitchhikers, though. Holy cow. Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about hitchhikers and the crazy shit that happens yeah, when you do. get picked up. It's like we're like, "Good luck, man." You don't expect to get picked up by a beach boy. Jesus, I know, really weird, right? Like, what are you doing, Dennis? Uh, but Dennis, I think, was a little—he was always kind of known as a little kooky, and he really was looking for something different. He—he he was bored with the Beach Boys music. I mean, that's like pop music, and and I think, I think all the Beach Boys were, were bored with that music. And so when he heard Charlie's music, he was actually really inspired, and he thought a lot of, of Charlie, and he really, um, you know. He supported him, in, not financially, but he supported him uh, as a friend, and he introduced him to people that he thought Charlie should meet that could help propel his career. Because at the end of the day, Charlie wanted to be famous. He wanted to be a famous performer, famous songwriter, singer. That was his goal. He wanted to be like a rock and roll star. The, I mean, we can... We can talk about how it became something different and race wars and all you want. But at the end of the day, this was all this all started because, you know, of his meeting with the person that Dennis Wilson introduced him to. In my opinion, is this is this is sort of the catalyst. This is when the tables turned and we started going down a, a bad road because I think Charlie would have been perfectly happy at Spawn Ranch doing what he was doing for uh, forever, honestly. But Dennis Wilson wanted to introduce Charlie to Terry Melcher. Terry Melcher uh, was a music producer and also Doors Day's son, which is like, what? Um, so Terry Melcher, you know, essentially Charlie does, you know, sort of a, um, not an interview, but he, he um, uh, what do you call it? I can't remember the word. Well, I don't he know what yeah, a like, demo? You, like he an audition? No, audition. Sorry, yes, sorry, but yes. <laughs> so, so Charlie audition, got it. So okay. Charlie, so Charlie Dennis actually got Charlie an audition with Terry Melcher, and that happened. And Terry Melcher actually liked his music so much so that Terry Melcher then goes out to Spawn Ranch and he takes some recording you know material and he actually records Charlie. He thinks Charlie's pretty good. So Charlie's thinking, damn, I got it, you know, Terry Melcher, I got a deal, I got a deal. Um, and somehow or another, at the end of all this, Charlie decides that he'll be the one to give Terry Melcher a ride home. So he does. Guess Sounds where Terry legit. Melcher lives? Yeah, it does. Terry Melcher lives, lived at 10050 Cielo Drive. Oh, no. Do you know who else lived there? Um, 
Sharon Tate in Roman Polanski. Roman Polanski. So Charlie goes, drops Cherry Melcher off. You know, Cherry Melcher's like, uh, does the old, hey, you know, I'll call you, dude. Well, guess what? That never <laughs> happens. He doesn't call. Charlie gets pissed because he's under the impression that he's going to get this great music, you know, deal. And, and, and he, in the not knowing and not understanding, Char- Charlie's from freaking prison. So I think that one thing we can probably all agree on is when you're in prison, your word is everything because that is all you have. So when this guy, you know, sort of dicked over Charlie, Charlie really took offense to it. And that's what yeah. started them down this road. Okay. Charlie got really upset. He didn't hear from Terry Melcher for a while. He uh, gets upset and he calls Dennis Wilson and he's like, hey, Dennis, what's up with Terry? You know, I'm ready from a deal. And uh, <laughs> Dennis Wilson's like, I don't know, man. I, I, I don't I don't think he's going to do it. And, you know, he kind yeah. of kind of blew him off, really. Right. And uh, Charlie gets angry at that because he's like oh no you're not i'm the king of the world and this is what he's been preaching to all his people right so now charlie's upset charlie's yelling at dennis on the phone um apparently and there are a lot of witnesses so it's not like this isn't new information so charlie gets in the car he drives over to terry terry melcher's house you know who's not living at that house anymore terry Terry melcher Melcher. so you know who Go uh, ahead. Yes. Ask a question. Just, I was just going to ask. So when, when was this? What, what month and year? This would have been in, this would have been in July of 1969. This is okay. So July of 69 is when the audition was or when Charlie went over to find Melcher and then found out that, Oh, he doesn't live here anymore because it has new tenants. Uh, sorry. Say that one more time. So the audition was in July of '69, or oh, the uh, the audition probably was in spring of '69. Okay, okay, got it. That's what. I, so okay, so the the audition was in like spring of '69, and then he drove over, being like, "Hey, buddy, why haven't you called me in like July?" And at that point, Melcher had moved out. Yes, exactly. It. it was probably okay. around June. Okay, got it. Because got remember, because remember, our key dates are at the beginning of August. Right. So we're gonna back it up a couple months. I mean, got this it. stuff perfect. went down like in a really short period of time. So yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Yep. So you know now Charlie's pissed. He's going over to uh, find out why the hell Terry. I'm going to his house. Goes over, bust in. Guess who's there on a photo shoot? It's Sharon Tate laying in a swimming pool. So Sherry, T- Sharon Tate. And Charlie Manson unofficially met each other at that moment because Charlie burst in and says, where's Melcher? And then the photographer is like, I don't know what you're talking about, but the Terry Melcher does not live here. This is the Polanski residence. And he kicked him out. So now Charlie's really pissed. And he's like, not only is Melcher not here, but some other fucking people are here. Was and it, uh, Sorry, huh? sorry one, more, one more question. What, yep. So was did Melcher still own it and just leased it to Polanski and Tate? Or because I thought he never owned it. Melcher never never owned it. it. Okay, got it. Okay, perfect. So he never owned it because they didn't own it either. They were still renting it too. I believe. Yeah, in typical typical Hollywood fashion, nobody owns shit. (laughs) So yeah. (laughs) Okay. Some other person owned it who was leasing it to them. Okay, got it. Yeah, Um, it was a nice house. I mean, I'm pretty sure the house is still standing. It is nice. Yeah. Um, But of course, you know, Charlie bust in again. This is the brief encounter with Sharon Tate prior to what happens in a month or two. Um, So Charlie goes out, you know, and he's kicked out. He's more pissed than ever. 
Now he's really getting worked up. He's getting his people worked up. You know, he needs an outlet for his rage and his anger. And he's so pissed at the establishment that everybody screwed me over my whole life. I'm going to take it out on someone. So right around this time, <laughs> I, I think this is so crazy. So we've got Dennis Wilson, right? Picking up Manson family people, uh-huh. hanging out smoking out, doing a bunch of drugs, enjoying the ladies. Um, then, then you've got uh, the Terry Melcher situation. And then you've got Charlie, who, uh, you know, is back at the ranch, really stirring it up. By this time, Charlie's pretty much talked his people into believing that he's Jesus Christ. Oh, I now, know. What I, it, I mean, kookaroo. And yeah, let me tell though. you. Oh, yeah. No, no. He was very persuasive. Let me tell you some of Charlie's others, other names besides Charles Manson. Charles, Charlie Manson also went by no name Maddox. Char, <laughs> I know. This is kind of cute, actually. Charles Miles Maddox. Charles Hanson. So he was a Hanson brother, which is Ooh, fucking bop. amazing. <laughs> that's awesome. Chuck Summers, because that sounds like a porn name. What? <laughs> I thought it was a talk show host. <laughs> yeah. <Daytime> Charles, <laughs> exactly. Charles Miles Summers, because that's the more regal and elegant version of Charlie Manson. And then the last two things he was known as was Jesus Christ and then JC for short. So, uh, <laughs> okay. okay. All right. <laughs> the big JC aside, why Miles Maddox in Summers? He kept on recurring, reusing those three names. Miles was his middle name, and then I don't know why I used Maddox. Who knows? Uh, God only knows. Char- Charlie was a he was a weird dude, man. Well, yeah, that's for sure. Okay, um, and uh, and he, who knows when he used him? I mean, he was probably you know, I mean, he's in and out of jail, right? So who knows? Yeah. Okay, so we've got Charlie going over to Melcher's house now. The 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 Tate home uh, or the Polanski home, as we'll call it. Um, Roman Polanski is away. He he is um, on location shooting a movie. I don't know if anybody remembers Roman Polanski from his other issues where he <laughs> drugged a 13 year old and raped her, uh, in his hot tub happening after this situation and then going into exile and not being allowed back in this country. But, uh, that's a side note. I think the more so, asked question is if anybody remembers Roman Polanski for being a movie director, because I feel like he's more known for those issues these days. Well, yeah, that's the problem, but I'm pretty sure he directed Chinatown, which is a good fucking movie. He directed some really good movies. Yeah, man. He I directed know. Tess. Like, he did some nice Rosemary's work. Rosemary's Baby, like... The Pianist. Oh, and God bless him for having to deal with Rosemary's Baby and freaking Frank Sinatra. Like, <laughs> oh, because Frank Sinatra was pissed, like, that she, he was pissed that his wife was away doing a movie. Not to digress. Okay, so let's get back on track with Charlie. So Charlie's pissed. It's heating up. It's heating up. They're doing tons of drugs. They're, you know, he's getting everybody all riled up. You know, he's Jesus. By the way, I don't know why. He, why does he want to be Jesus? Like, I'm, I will say that he's somehow or another. Yeah, but it's weird because to be to believe in that, you have to be Christian. And I don't understand. I cannot reconcile how Charles Manson thought that he was a Christian and he put Jesus on a pedestal. What would Jesus think of him? You know, like, really? Yeah, I, that's, I just That's it, a fair question. It's weird, yeah, but he no, used the it. Bible. He used the Bible a lot. He manipulated them. He used a lot of Bible verses, like the Old Testament stuff. They were going to go down and, you know, crawl down in a cave and wait for the race war to be over and then come out and help the, the African-American folk, with, you know, figure it out because God knows they couldn't do it themselves, oh. which is the stupidest thing I've ever heard, but a typical thing that a racist would say, right? For sure. 
All right, so getting back on track. Charlie, uh, you know, now we're in a situation where we've got a lot of people counting on Charles Manson as Jesus or JC or whoever uh, to, you know, as a leader to take care of them. He's got a flock. What When they realize that he's not going to get a record deal, they get a little freaked out because they don't have any money, right? How are they making money? I mean, prostituting maybe, but I don't think that was their jam. I think they really, he really thought he was going to get a deal. So when he doesn't get a deal, he has to figure out other ways to make money. Well, okay. So here we have Greg, or I think it's Gregory Hinman. Um, Gary, sorry, Gary Hinman. Gary Hinman was a musician and a music teacher in, I think, a PhD at UCLA. I don't know, something, something where I don't know why. And a friend of Charles Manson, so really weird. Um, I, apparently he was the one who was providing drugs to the, to the Manson family. Well, naturally, if you think about your drug dealer, you would remember that your drug dealer probably has cash on you, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, cash on them. So, you know, they sort of concoct this plan to go over to Gary Hinman's house and they're going to rob him. Now, remember guys, these, these, the family members have been, you know, amping it up a boatload of drugs. It, right before this, the, the catalyst to sort of propel them into the Hinman situation and then ultimately murder Gary Hinman was um, the White Album, which is so freaking weird. Charles the Manson. The Beatles' White Album. The Beatles' White Album. Charles Manson was infatuated with the Beatles' White Album. He could not get enough of it. And he thought that he didn't think that it was speaking to him. He thought that the Beatles' White Album was speaking what he had been preaching all along. So it supported all of his nonsense and especially Helter Skelter. Helter Skelter was what Charlie called the race war, you know, where that was going to be it. There was going to be a shift in power. And and then, of course, again, the Manson family would come out and save the day. So we've got this amped up, you know, Helter Skelter. I love that song, by the way, but it's a great song. It's a really great song. But in the wrong brain, I could see how it would, you know, lead him down a road. So again, you know, they're out of money. They concoct this plan to go over to Gary Hinman's house. Um, There are a few people who are going to be involved in this situation. So I will read you the people who we will be speaking of from here on out who really were the perpetrators of the crime. So we've got Tex Watson, who was from Farmerville, Texas. Um, Apparently he was a pretty good student in high school and he was a track star. So and. I think he was a pretty good looking guy, apparently, because the women really liked him. He's kind of Charlie's right hand man, by the way. So then we've got Leslie Van Houten. She's a homecoming queen. She went to Monrovia High, Monrovia High School, which is in California. She's pretty. Um, you, by the way, you guys can see pictures of all these folks because right around they took a lot of pictures and did a lot of video uh, videotape of them when they were filming, actually, at that time. But um, of the, the trial, and these guys had, like, a freaking swastika, like, screwed on or, uh, you know, scribed into their forehead. They were adamant that they were going to stick together as a family. So, Lizzie Van Houten, pretty girl, homecoming queen. Who knew? Then you got Susan Adkins. She's from L.A. Um, she went to San Francisco. She's kind of hippy-dippy. Um, I guess she was, like, a stripper. Um, you know, she just kind of floated around. She was very impressionable, apparently, and very much a part of the murders that are about to ensue. Um, you've got Patricia Cranwinkle, who, this sucks, uh, from, <laughs> from, again, L.A. Her father was an insurance executive, and she at one time wanted to be a nun. Oh, so. Yeah, I'm like, what a turn. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the other person we'll talk about here who, I, again, I'd really, 
think you guys should take a look at that family inside the Manson cult is Linda Kasabian. Linda Kasabian uh-huh. was young. She was impressionable. She was a drifter. She had picked up her daughter and left her husband because she, I guess they, there was some violence in the house. But she moved to the, um, you know, and became part of the, the Manson family. But she was kind of an outlier. I think she had a good head on her shoulders. And she was kind of the, the real hippie dippy, not an angry hippie, um, which is scary in and of itself. So, okay. So, I'm sorry. Go before, ahead. before you continue, I guess I, I always thought about the Manson family, the five, as really all being societal outcasts. But really, what you just, yeah, no, exactly what you just said. It, I mean, you've got Linda and you've got Susan, but the rest of them, you know, cho- church going, uh, good Christian wants to be a nun, a homecoming queen good-looking track star. I mean, these are people with good, solid upbringings with strong futures ahead of them. Well, this is what's perplexing about a group of people who you have a hard time reconciling that they could do something like this. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, how do you, how do you get to a point where it's okay for you to kill someone and to do it in a way that they did? And when we talk about the murders, it's atrocious. Yeah. So oh, yeah. not surprising what happened to these people who did this. And I did want to mention another person involved in the Manson family, but not necessarily with the Tate and LaBianca murders. And that person was Lynette Alice Squeaky From. And she, again, was not involved in the Tate LaBianca murders, but she did go on in 1975 to attempt to assassinate President Gerald Ford. So I just wanted to mention that, again, Charlie's reach was um, you know, fairly far and wide. And he was, uh, again, attempting to really incite some kind of chaos and war. And this was just another way for him to do that. And Squeaky Fromm, again, was sentenced to life from prison. She, I think, is still in jail right now. She was from Santa Monica, and she's right now 71. So another uh, Manson family follower. Oh, one more person I want to mention, Bobby Boussoulet. So Bobby Boussoulet essentially was the guy who killed Gary Hinman. Charlie uh-huh. and the family are standing there talking to Gary Hinman. They're yelling at him, give us the money, give us the money. And the guy's like, I don't have any money. And uh, Charlie says, okay, fine. Charlie cuts his ear off. And then he's oh. like, okay, give us the, gives the knife to Bobby Boussoulet, who on Wikipedia is known as a musical artist. Because um, <laughs> I guess he had a couple albums, but he happens to be in jail for the rest of his oh, life. Someone yeah, had him. some fun with his Wikipedia page. I know. Um, but he, he pretty much killed Gary Hinman. And so you've got that crime. And these guys didn't, like, they took no care in their crime. They didn't cover anything up. I mean, it was so easy to catch, you know, these folks for all of the crimes that they committed because they just, it it was absolute mess. It wasn't planned correctly. I don't mean, is there any planning correctly for a murder? But they sure didn't try to cover it up. I mean, what was weird, and we'll talk about it in a minute with the murders, though, is that, you know, they, they wanted people to believe it was a race war. They wrote on the wall in blood, pigs and all this other shit. Why did they leave all this evidence behind that would be so easy to attach them to these crimes? Perplexing, right? All right, Brittany, you have any questions so far? I'm about keep, to get into the important murders. Uh, no, keep going, because I I do have questions about the evidence that you say they, le- they left behind, but I know you're going to get to it, so I'm just going to let you proceed. All right, so on the night of August 9th, 1969, by the way, I was born... Uh, July 11th. So this was right after my birthday. So in my baby book, my mom wrote two things that were important. Three things that were important, actually. Sorry, three. One was that some Jim Stafford song was the number one song. The next was that the man had just walked on the moon. 
and the okay. other was the uh, Sharon Tate murders. Wow. In my baby, in my baby book. Because wow. I would have been like 20 years, 20 days old, just so you know. So, back to August 9th, 1969. Tex Watson, Susan Adkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian all drove to Cielo Drive. They knew how to get to Cielo Drive because we remember that that was Terry Melcher's house. And Charlie had been there before when he went and busted in and was going to demand that somebody produce his music. Um, I don't know what he was going to achieve there, threaten the guy. I don't know. Who knows? Um, so they drive up at night to what is essentially Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate's home. It's about midnight. Sharon Tate, of course, as we recall, I don't know if I've mentioned it yet. Sharon Tate was eight months pregnant when this occurred. Yeah, you haven't um, mentioned that yet. Yeah. So grisly, grisly, um, you know, thoughts as we think about what was to ensue with these folks going into this home. So Sharon Tate and baby, they were at the house, of course. She's eight months pregnant. Jay Sebring who was known as like the male hair renovator, I guess. Um, he was a famous hairstylist. He had had a relationship with Sharon Tate before because who doesn't have that with their hairstylist? <laughs> and then um, then they broke up, but they've been being great friends. He was like um, the hairstylist to the stars for like the male yeah. stars. Yeah, he was a big yeah, deal. He was, he was a big deal. And um, of course, I mean, if he's at Sharon Tate's house and she's famous, right? So obviously the, those, those folks... Um, also at the house was Wycheck Frakowski and Abigail Folger. Abigail Folger um, is heir to, was heir to the, the Folger coffee, you know, sort of thing. So she was very, very, very wealthy. So they're inside. They're doing their thing. Um, Tex Watson, uh, again, Susan Atkins and Patricia Krenwinkel and Linda Kasabian start walking it's like you, they parked on this like hillside, by the way, in LA right now, nobody in a million years would, ever, they would have a giant fence. You couldn't walk up to anybody's house. Um, you know what I mean? So that's, yeah, that's ain't no Roman Polanski leaving, you know, his yard open so people can walk in. But right now with the Cielo drive at this time, it was open. All you had to do was walk up to it. So they parked down, you know, the, the driveway, which was very long. Now, as they were walking across the driveway, they came upon a poor guy. He was 18 years old, and his name was Stephen Parent. And he was driving away down the driveway when Tex Watson and company come upon him. And Tex essentially shoots Stephen Parent uh, multiple times and leaves him dead in the car. Just leaves him there. Yep. He did tell Linda Kasabian to grab his wallet for some unknown reason, like we weren't going to figure out who Stephen Parent was because he was visiting somebody there on the, on the location. So murder number one. Uh, then they proceed to go up <clears throat> into the house. So now Tex and, and Susan and Patricia Krimwinkle and, and Linda Kasabian are walking up to the house. They uh, probably cut a screen or something. And they broke in. They go inside and they corral... J.C. Ring, Sharon Tate, uh, the Frakowski guy, and Abigail Folger into the living room. And they proceed to tie ropes around their neck. They pull them tight. They stab them. I think some of them were stabbed in the 20-something times. Mm -hmm. uh, it was vicious. And um, fortunately, they didn't do this. But apparently, it was a conversation that was had between one of them and Sharon Tate. Sharon Tate, of course, was begging for her, her child's life. And this is what the Manson family testified to. 
And um, they told her, they essentially said that they were really you know, looking forward to cutting her open and taking the baby out, taking the baby away with them. That was a conversation. They were going to actually take the baby. So really weird. Ultimately, they did not. And they just stabbed and some of them they shot and they just killed everybody there. Okay, so I have a question about the baby. And maybe we're going to get back to the baby and I don't want to stop you in your groove, but I really do have a question about the baby. Yeah, go for it. Okay, so I'm reading Helter Skelter. I'm still early on. But in one of one of the things that are mentioned is that she has, Sharon Tate has an cesarean-like incision from a knife. Mm-hmm. So they did not take the baby, but they stabbed her in the abdomen. That's where I was confused. Yeah, they did. Um, that's exactly what happened. I think that, and unfortunately, we know that they had conversations because right. exactly. Linda Kasabian talks about how what sh- what they said to her. Yes, and um, yes, that was the plan. But what I think Patricia Krimlichel said ultimately was that um, stabbing someone was a lot harder than she thought it was going to be, and the bones got in the way. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's gross. Okay. These people, this is why I'm like. Well, these people are screwed up. I'm sorry. I don't know where. I, I mean, okay. coming from a good home or not, yeah. to have that kind of conversation. Now, the, these were drug fueled because oh, I, yeah, yeah, I'm not definitely. mistaken. I'm not mistaken when Charlie sent these guys on their way to commit as gruesome a crime as possible to start a race war. Um, they were all on speed, so they were amped. Oh, up. probably. Okay. Now that that shouldn't that shouldn't you know change your moral compass. Um, but it, these, these people were fueled up. They had been brainwashed for so long when they were doing Charlie's bidding and they did. Yeah. So that's what they did. They murdered these, these four people. Um, and also Stephen Parent, and then they just drove away. And so of course it was big news. Poor, poor Roman Polanski finds out that his child and his wife has been murdered and people were scared shitless in LA. I mean, it was a big deal because you could, I mean, anybody could walk up. You know, so terrifying. This is where I want to throw in there, by the way. This is a good moment. Everybody who hasn't seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood <laughs> should watch it. Because what you will see is the location. I mean, this is, you know, it's this is exactly what it looked like. And so watch that movie. And then also Cielo Drive is fairly, you can you can look that up. It's it's But it, it's an interesting, you know, location per se. So... Yay, these guys drive away. They're all excited. They've murdered somebody. Linda Kasabian, by the way, had gone back to the car because she was so freaked out. Um, And so she didn't participate. She talks a lot about how sad that she was because she did see these people murdered. She saw everybody who murdered everybody. Um, I don't think that she saw the Sharon Tate murder, but I know that she saw Abigail Folder and um, Kowski murdered on on the lawn, on the back by the pool. And, um, you know, it was just really horrific. It was, it was awful. So everybody was very scared. Charlie, of course, was very happy about this and, um, you know, felt very sort of redeemed. You know, he was, he was going to make this happen no matter what and get, get this rolling with this race war. So, um, apparently the next night they decide that they need to go somewhere else and commit more murders. So I guess they're just driving around and they come upon um, the LaBianca home. And I guess uh, LaBianca had 
was an owner of a grocery store. Mm-hmm. They didn't know them. They they didn't pick them out. I think oh. this was in Las Feliz um, yeah. that they committed this murder. So the next night they go over to Las Feliz. They pick out some random house where they want to want to murder um, these folks. And again, Lino LaBianca and his wife Rosemary, um, lovely lady by the way. It was really a bummer. I don't know how they got in, but once again. You know, they go to this house, they do Charlie's bidding, and um, here's where some of these folks sort of, you know, got away got away from this crime and weren't there. But it was essentially Manson, Tex Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwickel, Linda Kasabian, and then also the Leslie Van Houten homecoming queen and Stephen, <laughs> Stephen Clem Grogan um, and it sounds like Manson sort of looked around and thought about who was going to stay and commit the crimes. And he's like, kind of picked everybody. He's like, you stay, you stay, you stay. And then he took with him. So he left behind, um, he left behind Tex Watson and Krenwinkel and Kasabian. No, he took Kasabian with her. Sorry. With him. So it was essentially Watson, Van Houten, and Krimwickel who remained, and they were acting out the orders of Charlie. So they stabbed the couple to death and um, took their blood and wrote, wrote on the wall, again, something inspirational to a race war, I suppose. And that's exactly um, what they did. Then they, then they essentially hitchhiked home. We've got more hitchhiking. That was ultimately it, you know. The, the, the Manson murders were technically, well... The Manson murders, which were really the Tate murders and La Bianca murders, um, pretty much ended there. Now, again, we talked about all of the different people who were involved. We've got Tex Watson. We've got Leslie Van Houten. We've got Susan Adkins. We've got Linda Kasabian. We've got Patricia Krenwinkel. And then Bobby Boussoulet. But Bobby Boussoulet had already been locked up for the the you know, the death of Gary Hinman. So Bobby Boussoulet early on had started sort of singing, we'll say, we'll call it, we'll call it. That's what, <laughs> okay. that's what we call it in jail talk. Oh, that's um, what but we he had, call it. Is that right? We? Yeah, we, me and you. From experience? Um, uh, yeah. I watch a lot of movies. Um, so, you know, he had already been caught for that. So it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. It wasn't hard to figure out who was doing what when you have all of these young individuals, you know, essentially being arrested and um you know they're gonna they're gonna talk about it as much as they can to get themselves out of trouble but um you know i have to say that the manson family at least these these folks um linda kasabian ultimately got um, an immunity deal because she was there but she didn't participate and i think that she had as most would agree, including others who weren't part of the Manson family, but just anybody who knew her um, was that, you know, she was an outlier to the Manson family. She really wasn't in it like they were. And even interviews you see with her later, it just doesn't seem like she's that kind of person. But what's weird about it is you've got, you know, again, Leslie Van Houten, Susan Adkins, Patricia Krimwinkel. Watch some of the videos of those folks, uh, as well as Tex, you know, when the original trials happened. So they... The evidence that they found at the crime scene was fairly easy to figure out. There was there was apparently um, witnesses that, you know, the car is coming and going. There were fingerprints all over because they used their hands to wipe the blood on the walls. Right. Right. They didn't find the weapons because they had thrown them out, like, on the way back to Spawn Ranch. 
Let me remind everybody that Spawn Ranch was about 25 miles from downtown LA. So that's pretty close. That's closer than me where I live. And I'm like right <laughs> at the top of Orange County. So, but such a world apart. Like you went into the, like this kind of desert atmosphere and it yeah, felt it's like very, another very world. different. A far cry from Cielo Drive. So, you know, here we go. You know, again, Charlie feels like that, you know, he's done something to, to propel. Well, of course, there is no race war. And then again, as the evidence sort of starts to unveil itself, because again, remember LA, they didn't know who had, who had committed the Tate murders. And then this, the night after we've got the LaBianca murders. Now LA, especially rich people in LA are freaking <laughs> out because they're like, Holy crap, you know, this is invasive and it yeah. can happen to any of us, yeah. especially as random as it was. Right. So quickly they started investigating and talking to different people. Of course, Bobby Boussoulet, you know, was again talking. And then there were others, girlfriends of people who had been around and some so on and so on who really um sort of sort of called it out and then of course i think texas arrested in, in um texas if i'm not mistaken and then the other girls were picked up periodically so it wasn't that hard to figure it out and um what was the what was the time frame that they were picked up i think it was like s- probably four to six months afterwards maybe oh, so sooner. it wasn't quick though i don't remember maybe it was i don't remember okay i have to say the the the, the, you know, figuring out who did it sort of anticlimactic because I, when they were picked up, I, I'm pretty sure they all confessed. I mean, there was no trial other than, you know, them just saying, yeah, you right. know, it was, it was not about who did it. It was yeah. about how, what they were going to do about it. Okay. And ultimately in reminder, all, every single participant, they, um, they were supposed to get the death penalty. They got the death penalty. They were all found guilty. They got the death sentence. Can you imagine Charlie and those folks on trial? <laughs> And, uh, but they commuted the, to life in prison. So all of those people, including Bobby Boussoulet, are actually still in prison, except for Charlie, who died. And, Is um, he the only one know, that's died so far? I think so, yeah. Well, the girls were young. Yeah, I know. That's true. I, I mean, they were in else died, but maybe not. Okay. I mean, the only, it would have been te- Texas, pretty sure, still alive. And remember, Brittany, we... In Mindhunter, our favorite show, I will circle back. We, um, you know, they talked to what they could characterize as tax. And it, I I feel like it was a pretty good representation of tax. I mean, there's a lot, again, there's a lot of information. These guys talked a lot. Um, They really wanted to share the word of Charlie. And, um, you know, they supported him and stuck together, even in jail. I think what I've seen in the recent years is that most of them have come around and realized that what they did was very wrong. Yes, for sure. But Hey, you know what? I'm sorry. You should know in the moment when you're stabbing someone 27 times in the chest, when they're eight months pregnant, you know, the difference between right and wrong. Yeah, definitely. But I, I, you know, I have to say, you know, Again, Charlie was charismatic and manipulative enough to talk these people into this. Su- Susan, At- um, I'm just sorry. Susan Atkins died in 2009. I thought so. Did she? Yeah. How'd she die? Uh, uh, she was, must have been young. Yeah, she was only. Well, she, well, she was 61. So yeah. How did she die? Uh, imprisonment. Keep, I'll, I'll look. Keep, keep going. Yeah, keep looking it up. So here's one little tidbit that I thought was really kind of brain I'm, cancer. I'm gonna, oh, okay. Oh, that sucks. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that most most of them try, had tried to redeem themselves in uh, jail. Honestly, I think they had done some schooling and they were really 
advocates of something or other. I mean, Leslie Van Houten, I think that, you know, she had tried to turn it around. And she's a pretty lady. Like, what the hell were you thinking? Um, so here's what I'll say about this. S senseless crime, right? Just let's not forget, because I know we've glamorized this topic, and it was the Tate murders, and it was horrific, and many people will say, oh, it's the worst serial killing in the history of L.A., Let's not forget that Charlie was just a freaking hippie who was manipulative, who and a, and a career criminal who was just trying to get things stirred up so that he could control his people. It's really no more than that. He was striking back at society and the establishment because they didn't accept him. And this was his ultimate strike was that he was going to scare people and control people and get people, a significant amount of people to do what he want, mm -hmm. do what he wanted and to the tune of murder of some very important yeah. people. Now, whether they were important or not, um, th their deaths were important and, and what, you know, senseless. So all that chatter about Charlie and his craziness and his planning, I don't give it too much weight because at the end of the day, he was just pissed off who, you know, uh, took it out on, on a variety of people that he didn't know to prove his point and to show that he had control over uh, a family that he really ultimately did. I mean, these were, these people started their lives as decent people and somehow or another he persuaded them to do things that were unthinkable yep so i will leave you with this because i thought this was really weird and wikipedia had, please do had this note. yeah let's hear it i'm quoting wikipedia though they're talking about charles Manson. uh-huh though he found temporary acceptance from the aryan brotherhood they're talking about him in jail uh-huh his role was submissive to a sexually aggressive <gasps> member of the group at San Quentin. No. So does that mean that like Charlie was some bitch of an Aryan Brotherhood dude? <laughs> That's is that what I'm hearing? That is exactly what I just heard. Yeah. That's... I don't know who put that in Wikipedia, but that no that makes it feel, feel a little bit better. Wow. Maybe. I, know. I don't know. I just thought it was so weird. I'm like, what a weird little footnote. <laughs> that's so weird i think charlie was crazier and more fascinating than the crimes other than just being horrible um you know he was a, he was a two-bed hustler Ooh, <laughs> he really was he really uh, was he just manipulated he, some young people by giving them a shitload of drugs and talking them into doing things unspeakable things he was really that, really um, good at that well that's what career criminals do I mean, it's sad, but that's why cult leaders are so powerful. I mean, yeah, no, it, that's so a, true. Pe people who are who are have been taken in by cults and their families, um, you know, when they look at these same people, their family doesn't even know them. They're like they thought the person they thought they knew. They just can't even imagine that they would be okay with that. Yeah. yeah, it's but it's so sad because it really does speak to the power of brainwashing. So that's true. There's my story, my Charles Manson story. I got it off my chest. Yay! I feel so much better. Great job. Oh, that was a great story time. <sighs> my God, that was like an hour. You, did you take a nap? You talked for an hour. I know. I'm sorry. You have to hear me talk all I the got, time about work. I, I so got my I'm work so cut sorry. out for me when it's my turn and uh, whenever it's going to be my turn. Well, I got a lot of questions about your subject. So uh, I don't know. Do you want to share what your subject is? No, I want to keep it a secret. Oh. Who are we keeping it a seat from? Me and you? I know what it is. Don't I? I? Yeah, you know. Well, you. I think you do. I Okay, maybe because I haven't decided 100% yet because I may be having second thoughts and thinking about doing something else. Okay. 
Well, then we will keep it under wraps. Yeah, but I think I think Alrighty. I think you know. But uh, awesome job, Sonia. Thank you. Thanks for participating, Brittany. (laughs) I I really did enjoy that because I really do. I think that's an interesting story and it's amazing. It all started because Dennis Wilson picked up a couple of chicks that were hitchhiking. That's crazy. I didn't. I never knew that. Cuckoo. All right. All right, Scarlettos. Thanks for listening to uh, this special episode. We appreciate it. Uh, Hope you enjoyed it. We'd love to hear your feedback on uh, this unique, unique uh, take on our podcast so let us know what you think all righty scarlettos thanks for listening we are the ladies of scarlet keep killing it We want to give a shout out to the Pod All the Time podcast network that we scarlet tcp are proud members of Other members of the Pod All the Time podcast network are Another Digital Citizen, History of a Haunting, Round and Round the Podcast, Real AKA Truth Podcast, Ruck Up Podcast, Random Unnamed Podcast, Suburban Folk, Three Peas in a Podcast, Raw Sex Podcast, I Think We're Doing It Podcast. So if you like what you're hearing from Scarlet TCP, check out these other shows, the members of the Pod All The Time Podcast Network. Hey, y'all. I'm Brandon Hall. I'm one of the hosts of Music City 911, a podcast about the good, the bad, and the dark side of 911 dispatching. Me and my co-hosts are 911 dispatchers with over 60 years of experience. Join us as we play 911 calls and discuss them. Oh, did I mention that we get dark? 911, what's your emergency? I just shot everybody right now. You just shot everybody? How many people did you shoot? Uh, three. Four, shot five, officer down, shot five. There's gunshots. 453, I have a party shot here at the rescue hot. We got multiple casualties. This is a mass casualty situation here. My brother's attacking my family. They shot my husband, and they shot my daughter, and they shot me. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Music City 901, and we're downloadable on every podcast platform.